Well, good morning, everyone. Special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Thank you for being with us. And we pray that wherever you are, you are sensing that you also are with us before the throne of grace. And as we study the word coming from the ancient of days, that it would be a blessing to you as well. We had a marvelous time last Sunday evening celebrating Thanksgiving with testimony and song and fellowship and good food, and it was good for us to be together. And we hope that um, those of you that were not able to be with us this time will already start to mark your calendars to get ready to celebrate with us next time. Uh, just a reminder here to uh, make sure your phones are turned off as we continue on through our service. Now, there are certain events that are always a lot more fun to announce than others, and there's one that I am very pleased to be able to announce this morning, but I'm kind of amazed that they're not here this morning. They're in Sunday school. Well, I got a picture here of a beautiful young couple, Mark Nasser and Caitlin Bamford, and they are getting married in February. And I was going to have them stand this morning, uh, but they're not here, so we'll have them do it another time. But here's why I'm announcing it. To quote Pastor Brian, all y'all are invited. And so I want you to be able to sign up, let them know. There's ways on the card that you can let them know that you're coming on that day. I believe it's, uh, it's February 18th. So everyone is invited, but you must RSVP by December 15th. I know, I realize with Christmas going on, you're not thinking about a wedding in February, but they are. And so they didn't know how many, plan, how many to plan for. And so if you'd like to be with us on that day, please uh, RSVP and let them know that you're coming uh, and celebrate a wedding. We haven't had one at the church for a while. So this will be a fun, fun day that we all very much look forward to. The author Brian Harbour in his book, Rising Above the Crowd, shares a story of overcoming doubt and disappointment by keeping your focus on the Lord. He writes, the year was 1920. The scene was the examining board for selecting missionaries. Standing before the board was a young man named Oswald Smith. He, he dreamed of becoming a missionary. It dominated his heart. Over and over again, he prayed, Lord, I want to go as a missionary for you. Open a door of service for me. And now he thought at last his prayer would be answered. When the examination was over, the board turned Oswald Smith down. He did not meet their qualifications. He failed the test. Oswald Smith had set his life in one direction, but life now had given him a detour. What would he do? As he prayed, God gave him another idea. If he could not go out as a missionary, he would build a church that would send out missionaries. And that is what he did. Oswald Smith pastored the People's Church in Toronto, Canada, one of the largest churches in the world, which during the time of his pastorate sent out more missionaries than any other church in the world. He brought God into the situation, and God transformed his detour into a main thoroughfare of service. You know, doubt and disappointment happen to all of us in life. While we long to see growth, fruitfulness, faithfulness in our spiritual journeys, we are not promised that all will be easy. Sadly, the effects of sin linger long after we would like them to. Unrealized dreams can cause us to question the meaning of life and if there is purpose in what we're doing. Though we may initially see doubt and disappointment as unwanted friends in the Christian life, they might just be the things that God uses to draw us into a deeper love and trust relationship with him, the one who called us, who saves us, and who keeps us for his eternal glory. In our passage that we will look at this morning, we will see once again John the Baptist. We met him earlier in Matthew's gospel. And though he was a forerunner of the Lord, a man sent by God to announce the arrival of the Messiah into the world, he also was prone at times to fits of doubt and disappointment when things did not go as expected or according to his understanding of the ways of the Lord. He had to learn a lesson that indeed all of us need to learn that God is still good, still in charge, and moving all things towards the accomplishment of his divine purposes. Therefore, in the midst of doubt and disappointment, we are to move toward God 
and not move away from him. When challenges and trials come, we move toward God, the one who can actually make a difference, and not away from him, which is our tendency to do. Well, with that, we, I invite you to stand now as we read our passage that we will look at this morning, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. And the inspired and divinely given word of God says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word now, we need your help to learn from what you have given and so would you guide our hearts and our thoughts and our minds and banish all distractions from us that we might focus on the greatness of you, our God, your goodness in sending your Son, and the privilege we have of this holy word given by your Holy Spirit. Would you teach us this morning for your glory, for our good, and for the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. It is simply the reality of life that doubt comes to all who have ever walked the dusty trails of this world. And even when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, because sin is still present and the effects of sin are all around us, we are all prone to moments of doubt that spring from disappointment and from times of defeat. Doubt often arrives to us when our expectations have not been met or our circumstances have become difficult, or our presuppositions have been challenged, or our feelings have been hurt or bruised. When we don't get what we thought we deserved, or we don't like what is happening, we can go into fits of disappointment. These kind of things happen to all of us. And a mark of maturity, then, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, is learning to deal with those doubts and disappointments in ways that are wise and reasonable and helpful and even holy. For often it's not the circumstances themselves that need to change, but our expectations of them. Perhaps our expectations were ill-informed, misguided. It may be the results that don't need to change, but our reactions to them. Indeed, we serve a sovereign God. So it is our attitude that needs to adjust when our perceptions perhaps are a little off. When we deal with doubts, we can move in the direction of self-destruction and look for ways to cover up the pain and the misunderstanding that doubts can bring. Or it can move us to a time of self-reflection as we look to the Lord. And as we do that, may the grace of God give us eyes to see and perceive and receive and understand what it is that he is doing. Well, in our passage this morning, we look at what happened to John the Baptist and his temptation to change his perception of Jesus, his perception of the Messiah, because of his circumstances. And we will see the gracious response that our Lord Jesus Christ gave to one who in fact was his cousin and friend, but the one who also was the one God had chosen to be the prophet who would announce his arrival. So with all that as our introduction, if you've not already, I invite you to turn to your sermon outline in the bulletin or on your church app. Those of you joining online, we get to our first major point this morning. John, who is this Jesus? 
Jesus has been teaching about the reactions that his followers will receive as they go out in his name and they preach his gospel. We've seen that Jesus promised that some would oppose the message. Some would separate themselves from others because of the message. Some will receive it. And as we saw last week, those that receive the message are saved. They have their eyes open to see and to understand, and they embrace the gospel. But there might even be division that happens because of it, even within their own families. We saw as well that those who help, those who serve, those who enable the servants of God, even in the smallest manner, will be rewarded. We saw all that in chapters 9 and 10. Well, now we get to the beginning of chapter 11, and there's a scene change in the text. You remember perhaps uh, way back several months ago and we talked about the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew that he organized his material according to themes. And he gives us cues and clues as to when he's changing the scenery. Five times he uses an expression like what we see here in chapter 11, verse 1. And when Jesus had finished instructing, and in this case, his 12 disciples. There are five types of these changes in in the Gospel of Matthew. We saw one at the end of chapter 7. We see another one here. We'll see another one at the end of chapter 13. But over the next two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, there will be nine episodes or series of stories, if you will, that are grouped into three sets of three. And in each of them, the first two episodes are more negative, and the third one is positive. For example, in chapter 11, we have two negative episodes of people not responding positively to the gospel, but then end with this beautiful call to repent and believe. And there'll be two more similar sets as we move through chapters 11 and 12. Matthew was a brilliant organizer of the material that he had. There was intentionality, there was purpose as he is telling the story to the original audience that he had, wanting them to see that Jesus is the Christ. So our text begins, when Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. You recall that as Jesus was moving around and saw the masses, he said, the needs are many, the workers are few. He prayed, and as he prayed, the Father revealed to him 12 that should follow him as apostles. He then prepares those 12 and sends them out first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but preparing them for eventual ministry to the Gentiles. And that's all we know. We don't hear much about the details of their their preaching and teaching ministries. All we do is now we get back to where the focus will be on Jesus preaching in Galilee to the cities that are there. So as the story moves on, we see the reality of doubt. The reality of doubt. Now when John heard in prison, I'll just stop there with that clause. Matthew does not list all that he tells us about Jesus in chronological order. He often organizes passages according to themes. For example, here he just tells us that John is in prison. We don't find out why John is in prison until we get to chapter 14, where we find out that he's in prison because of his faithful proclamation of the gospel and not being afraid even to call kings and their lovers for their sin. Well, people like Herod and Herodias, they do not like to be confronted over their sin and their moral failings, and so they put John in prison. And eventually, when we get to that episode in chapter 14, we'll find not only had he languished in prison for quite some time, but now he would be executed for his faith. He is imprisoned in an area today known as Perea, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Perea is about halfway down the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. And in the area there, there's a place called Machaerus, where King Herod had a summer palace And it was also used as a place where he would hold prisoners. There's a whole series of caves there where prisoners would be held. And it's likely that it is in one of those caves that John was held in prison. Imprisoned for righteousness' sake. He had preached the gospel. And it had brought persecution. But if we understand what Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But here we find John in prison for at least several months. And so he has time to reflect upon what is happening. And so we continue with our text. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. I have seen the cave 
by the Dead Sea warriors thought that John was held during our time in Jordan. It was not easily gotten to. And so John would not have had many visitors, just the prison guards and maybe some of his disciples who would occasionally visit him. And so he would not have heard a lot of things from prison about what is happening, but somehow he does. And notice the wording that Matthew gives us. Matthew does not use the word Jesus here. Matthew says, tu Christu, the Christ, when he heard about the deeds of the Christ. Recall Matthew writing to his fellow Jewish believers. He wants them to understand who the Messiah, who the Christ is. And so draws attention to the fact that the Christ, the one promised, the one for which they were longing, the one they waited for, the Christ is Jesus. He has come. And he hears about the deeds of the Christ. And I find it interesting that it's emphasis on the deeds or the works of the Christ and not the words. That perhaps will come later. But it's something about the works of the Christ that get John's attention. And that's key to understanding this encounter that Jesus has with the disciples of John, who had his own set of disciples right from the beginning. And we've, we've already encountered some of them earlier when they came to ask Jesus a question. John was a preacher. He was a prophet. He boldly preached about sin, repentance, getting ready for the kingdom of God. He expected judgment. He even said, the axe is at the root of the tree. Now, therefore, is the time to repent. He warned the Jewish leaders, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And so he was not afraid to boldly confront both the political and religious leaders over against their sins against the law of God. But that same one, now he is in a cave and he's having doubts. He's wondering who Jesus really is. Difficult circumstances, my friends, tend to cloud our judgment. They tend to challenge the soul. So we need to recognize that they will come. And if John the Baptist could go through a period of doubt, we should not be surprised that we may experience doubts at times as well. Doubts can happen. Doubts do happen. Disappointments can happen. We do not need to believe the lie of the evil one who says, come to Jesus and everything is a bed of roses and a bed of ease. That's never promised to us. There will be a spiritual struggle. There will be times of doubt and disappointment. But it is what we do with our doubts and our disappointments that makes all the difference. So at this point in the gospel, it, it comes in a timely situation. Jesus has spent two chapters, at least in Matthew's accounting, getting the disciples ready, saying there will be times of persecution. It will happen before kings. It will happen before tribunals. It will happen before Jews. It will happen before Gentiles. It will happen in your own family. And then right after he does all of that, now we have this episode of doubt on the part of a great man of God. I think that's timely as Matthew is reminding us of who Jesus is so that we are prepared and ready to know who he is when we enter into moments of doubt. To quote the great British teacher and evangelist, Dr. Oz Guinness, doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is the state of mind and suspension between faith and unbelief, so it is neither fully faith, nor fully doubt. Well, in simpler terms, let me state it this way. Doubt is the struggle to believe in the heart what one knows is right in the mind. And that's especially true when times are difficult. It's not that doubt is not having any faith, it's that doubt is having weak faith. And if doubt is having weak faith, then that means we know the, the problem and we also know the solution. It's getting closer with the word of God. It's having more intimacy with him through his spirit. It's believing what he says. It's being with his people. It's claiming the promises. Doubt can be overcome by knowing more about who God is, his character, his goodness, his kindness. He never changes. And so are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? But he sent word to his disciples and said, this is what John said, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, there's a lot behind this expression, the one who is to come. It became a, a, an expression of messianic hope, messianic expectation 
It was the cry of the Jewish people for centuries, longing for the Messiah to come. It was the theme of the prophets, of the one who is to come, who would bring deliverance, who would bring forgiveness, who would bring liberation, who would free them from oppression. The one who is to come. But what Jesus is doing doesn't seem to match in John's mind what Jesus was expecting. After all, John, at the beginning of his ministry, said the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Judgment is imminent. And so by asking the question, are you the one who is to come, John reveals that his expectations were not properly informed. In his own ministry, he had baptized people as an expression of repentance and of cleansing, saying the Lord has come. He boldly called people to righteousness. He declared that judgment was here and that God would deal with it. So show the fruit of repentance, he said, or you'll be judged. He was expecting in that time of oppression, high taxation, lack of freedom and, liber and movement, he expected a military-type leader who would liberate the people from the tyranny of Rome. He expected a different type of Messiah than what Jesus seemed to be. So are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Think about John. He was bold. He said face to face to the king, what you're doing with this paramour is not right. He's expecting judgment. But as he languishes in a prison, he hears of works of healing and compassion and mercy and grace. And even his own disciples, John's own disciples, hadn't fully grasped who Jesus was. Obviously, they're still following John when John is, should have been leading them to Jesus. But earlier in Matthew, the disciples of John came to Jesus and said, why don't you fast? Why don't you practice simple living like John does? And Jesus said, how can they fast? The bridegroom is here. This is a time of celebration. The Messiah has come. Soon, though, he said, when the Son of Man is handed over. That would be unusual language for John and his disciples to hear. But Jesus talked about his coming arrest and death, and that even his own followers would be, su would be suffering and would be persecuted and be put to death. No wonder John is confused. He's expecting this great, strong man to come and bring liberty and to bring freedom and to throw off the oppressors. Is this Jesus really the Messiah? If this is the kingdom of heaven, why am I in prison? Why am I still here? And I have to say that I'm thankful that this story is in the Bible. Because we are not privileged to always understand what God is doing. We have limited knowledge. We have limited perception. But God is sovereign. He alone is sovereign. God has no limits. We may suffer doubt. We may suffer disappointment. We may not understand fully what God is doing. We may even be tempted to cry out with John, are you the one who is to come? Or is there another we should expect for? But God doesn't always act according to our perceptions, our expectations, when we might even question his methods. So I'm happy that this story is here because it reflects my heart at times. When I'm tempted to doubt, when I'm tempted to be discouraged, I can just go like John the Baptist, really? Who are you? And then thankfully we see the mercy of our God. We see Jesus' response to doubt. And thankfully, though John was doubting, he knew enough to knew to do the right thing, he wisely took his doubts to Jesus. He models for us that in times of despair, that we're not to look to our circumstances, but to Jesus. You know, our culture is quite clever because we're quite clever. We look for methods to deal with doubt so that we can be the saviors of our own situations. Maybe we'll hide behind drugs and alcohol to deaden the pain. Maybe we'll look to self-help groups and look for answers within ourselves. Maybe we'll turn to pop psychology and just speak positive words to ourselves as if somehow that will change the situation. 
But deep down, we know that those methods do not work because they're not based on truth. The one who is the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate manifestation of truth. And so John took his doubts to Jesus. Will you do that, my friend? When doubts arise, you already know enough about the word of God. You know enough about the promises of God. You know enough about his character. Just go straight to him with your doubts, your disappointments, your discouragements. Then Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. They brought a real question, a sincere question. And notice that Jesus here doesn't take the time to scold John. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? You're the prophet of God. You should know better. That might be the tactics of some. That's not the tactic that our Lord Jesus Christ uses. He knows John enough to know that he's asking a serious question. He's dealing with real pain. It is not comfortable to be imprisoned in a cold Roman cell, stuck in a cave for months. He just needs a reminder, John does, that he's already been exposed to a lot of light. And what you see in the light, do not forget in the darkness. What you've learned in the wilderness, John, do not forget in the prison. It's a good lesson for us today. Learn those lessons today that God has for you so that when you go through times of trial, you won't forget in the midst of the trial what you saw clearly in the times of joy, the times of pleasure. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the good news and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus draws their attention to the evidence of the situation of what he's been doing. And the fact that in, in, in the, the grammar, it's in the present tense. This is something that Jesus is doing in an ongoing basis. He's teaching, preaching, and performing these miracles. And so think of the privilege that these crowds had. They see the works and the wonders of God, even if they don't fully understand them. Many of them had the opportunity to hear John and his message and his warning. But still they've not seen and believed. The disciples of John are still asking the same question that John has. And Jesus says, look at the evidence. Look at what I'm doing. Jesus himself knows because he's already said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He knows that miracles of the Messiah were predicted in the prophets in places like Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. In fact, the very same list that he gives here were predicted 700 years before Christ through the prophet Isaiah. And what was the first sign that the prophets listed? The blind receive their sight. There was no such sign in the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament did not perform that particular miracle, though they performed others. And yet this seemed to be a, the most common miracle that Jesus performed. He gave sight to the blind to show that not only is he the one who gives physical sight, but he is the one who gives spiritual sight because after all, he is Lord over all. John, look at what is happening have your own eyes open to see that the very first miracle Jesus is performing is the blind receive their sight. And along with that, of course, a list of other miracles. But it's the promises of the prophets that are coming true in space and time in living color and 3D right in front of John. And he's saying, look at the promises, John. Look at what is happening. Look at the miracles. Remember the word of God. Look and see. See and understand. Understand and believe. You know, my friends, in times of doubt today, pick up your Bible. Look at the promises that are in there. What God has said he will do and he never fails and he never changes. And, and look at how he has kept his promises over the millennia to his people and will continue to do with his people today. And in this age of grace, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, believe his promises and freely offer the gospel to all those who are around you because they also need to hear of the light that came into the darkness, of life that can overcome death, and that there is one that gives sight to the blind. So Jesus sends them back. He says, go and tell them what you have seen and heard. Take a good inventory 
of the evidence. Don't look at your own circumstances. Look at what the Christ is doing. Great counsel for us today. Look at what the Christ is doing in our church, in your life, in the family, in our community, in the world. There's something about reading the word of God that just brings hope to the soul. In my own life, I have to apply this and battle for this in a very practical manner. And so many years ago, I put a Bible app on my phone. I put a Bible app on my laptop. And there have been times when I have dealt with serious doubt. I would be awakened in the middle of the night and pace the floors for hours at a time wondering what God was doing. Why did he put me in this situation? What is he trying to offer? And the only solace that I could look to was sitting in a chair, hitting play, and letting the word of God being spoken to me. And sometimes I would sit in that chair or lie on the couch for hours, but I always fell asleep, and I would wake up the next morning with the sun shining and a recognition that I could trust God and that I could get, make it through the next day. And if that exercise needed to repeat itself, I would repeat it. And I've had to repeat it several times over the years. Put an app on your phone. Sometimes it's hard just to even read or maybe you don't feel like it. You push play and you hear the word of God being read to you. And it brings comfort and counsel and hope and truth. The voice that we need to hear the most in the midst of doubts is his and not any other voice. And I'm so thankful for Jesus' response to doubt. Look at the evidence, look at the word, look at me. So he gives a warning. Do not doubt about me. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This takes on greater warning when we see that the word for offended comes from the Greek skandalizo. Ah, you hear the word scandal there or scandalize. The word means to fall away or to apostatize. It means to have spiritual defeat. He's saying, John, don't allow your faith to be defeated. Do not give up on me. Do not be embarrassed by me. Jesus wants John to know, look at your understanding and have it corrected so that you have an understanding of who I am as the true Messiah, the true Christ who is to come. John, the scribes and the Pharisees may stumble over me, but John, don't stumble over me. Here's the proof found in the scriptures. You know, often we are tempted to feel offended or disappointed by something that has happened. It's not necessarily because something wrong was done. It might be because our expectations were off. It might be because we didn't know enough about the situation. And we need to bring all of that to the test of the word of God. Does it stand up to the scrutiny of the word of God? That's what John had to do. He had expected a mighty warrior. He had expected a great liberator. But Jesus says, look to the evidence. Look to the word. Look to who I am. John, don't be like my enemies who misunderstood me, who slandered me. Don't be like my disciples who are tempted to be ashamed of me. Do not stumble even though you're in prison. John, remember the promise. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake, for great is their reward in the kingdom of heaven. And so in the first half of what we've seen, which is more than half of our message this morning, we have the question, John says, who is this Jesus? But in the second half, we have the second question. Jesus asks, who is this John? And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So the disciples of John leave, they go back to Jesus, and now Jesus turns to the crowd who had been listening during all that time, and perhaps they're wondering, what was this conversation all about? And now Jesus is going to give his assessment of John the Baptist. He had to correct John the Baptist's assessment of him, but now he will give the correct assessment of this prophet. First, he calls him a bold man. I love the fact that Jesus dealt tenderly with the doubts that John had. He did not scold John neither in private nor in public. In fact, he praises him. Three times he asks the crowd what they expected concerning John the Baptist. 
And when we look at the second half of this passage next week, we will see that Jesus has some amazing things to say about this John the Baptist, including that he was the greatest human being ever born. And we'll look at what that means next week when we get into context. But the people of God had, had been in silence for 400 years. God had not spoken for 400 years. They're agonizing and waiting. When will God speak again? And then suddenly this man who dresses like a prophet, stays in the wilderness like a prophet, begins to preach like a prophet and says some amazing things. So, of course, they're going to go out and see who this is. And so Jesus says, well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You know, a reed shaken by the wind is a natural occurrence. When the wind blows, the reed shakes. If the wind is strong enough, the, wind, the reed bends and it breaks. Is John just a flimsy man who just cowers at the first sight of opposition? No, he was not like that. He did not waver when the message became uncomfortable. He was more concerned about representing God than pleasing men. He was bold before all and he preached the gospel with boldness before all, calling them to faith and repentance, even kings and mistresses. He did not mold his message to fit, to fit the mood of the hour. No, he continued to preach repentance. He continued to preach righteousness. He continued to preach with boldness, even when those around him were tempted towards fear. He was a bold man. Secondly, Jesus says that John the Baptist was a committed man. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What, did you go out to see a man dressed in silk and satin and top hat and a bow? A man of refinement? A man of influence? No, this Jesus dressed like a prophet, clothed in camel's hair, eating locust and wild honey. Those who have privilege live in Lavish homes. John lived in the desert in difficult circumstances, which were far from plush and luxurious. He was not rich. John did not seek prosperity or popularity, but he told the biggest and best blessing and the most important thing there ever was, the Messiah has come into the world. He was not a king, didn't try to live of a king, but he told of a great king who came with a kingdom that would last forever, even as we saw the promise in, in Daniel chapter 7 during the passage of the invocation of the Messiah receiving a kingdom that will last forever. He didn't seek riches of this world, but he told of wealth that would go on forever and the greatest riches one could have found in the one who is to come. My friends, do not be afraid during this Advent season to tell others about where true riches are found. Do not be afraid to tell others where the greatest present can be located, the greatest gift found in the one who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy to proclaim, worthy to live for, and if called to it, worthy to die for, because we'll be in his glorious presence forever. John the Baptist was bold, he was committed, and he was a prophetic man. What then did you go out to see, Jesus asked. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. They saw a prophet. A prophet who came and boldly declared the truth of God and presented his message. The prophet who declared right from wrong, good from bad. The prophet who has the word of God and goes out in the power of the spirit of God. And then Jesus says the statement that should incite wonder in our hearts. He says that John is more than a prophet. He is the one of whom other prophets prophesied. There's a ref direct reference here to Malachi 3.1. There's a reference earlier in the gospel to Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. That John the Baptist was sent by God as an Elijah type figure who would announce the coming of the Lord. What an amazing statement and affirmation that this prophet, this John, was predicted by other prophets. 
to be the one sent out by the Lord and not by any human entity. What an encouragement. Jesus commends the ministry of John to the listening crowds. He had challenged John to remember the true signs of the Messiah. Now he's telling the crowd to listen to the true message of John, all of which point to him as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And in what we call the history of redemption, John had an important role to play in announcing the kingdom of heaven, and he played it well. He prepared the way for God's Messiah to come. And for us today, my friends, all of us have a role to play because we also have been called and set apart and God wants to use us for service and may God empower us to play well the role that we have been given, whether we think it is big or whether it seems small, whether it is visible or whether it is obscure. Let us be those who declare the deeds of the Christ, the words of the Christ, the hope that we have in the Christ. And lastly and briefly, let's look at the idea of the Christian in doubt. We do not yet live in a perfect world. We are not yet all that we will be. We have not yet seen the fullness of the kingdom of God come in. And so let's just have a little time of just practical pastoral counsel dealing with doubt. First, doubt happens to us all. Pain, misery, Injustice, bruised emotions can all cause people to doubt. And the fact that we still deal with sin so that our, our, our hearts and our wills and our minds are not yet perfected can move us to not see what is in front of us. And so we need to continually check our expectations against the revealed truth of God. It is simply the case that my emotional state will change. My mood will change, but God's word doesn't change. Far better for me to live my life according to the unchanging word of God than my changing moods. And so we go to the word of God to carefully see what the scriptures actually say so that our expectations line up with what the word of God says. And as we find that our expectations line up with what the word of God says, when doubt and disappointment come, we deal with them boldly and correctly because we take them to the Lord. And so we, we work hard to study God's word carefully, correctly, so that we receive the promises that can strengthen us. Because if we have misused the word of God, misused promises that are misapplied, we can't expect God to keep them in the midst of doubt and disappointment. But we can't expect him to keep the promises he has clearly delivered to us. Secondly, we can defeat doubt with faith. But the Christian is not simply called to take it on faith. Sometimes we hear that, well, you just got to take it on faith. Faith does not mean we believe against the evidence. Faith does not believe, mean we believe with no evidence. Faith does not believe that we believe against rationality. Now, we are called to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God is the ultimate rational being. And so it is rationality itself to believe in God vigorously, to love him with our minds, to understand the word of God, examine the evidence, to see what God is doing, and then to grow in that. So we take God at his word. We may not have full understanding, but we have enough to know that he is trustworthy, whatever the circumstances we are in. And then use those means that God has given and already provided for us so that we will overcome doubt. I've already talked about reading the word of God, praying to the Lord, the one who can actually do something about it, and then be part of his family regularly. It is he who has created his family in which disciples are made, in which growth is, pro is promoted, in which people are growing and can pass on from one generation to the next. What it is we are learning is the people of God. He has redeemed a people for himself. Yes, a people composed of persons, but we are part of the family of God of, over whom he is the father. It's not enough for me just, as I like to do, sit at home and listen to podcasts. I listen to podcasts. I look at YouTube videos. It cannot replace 
What happens is we are gathered together as the saints of God, praying for one another, serving one another, learning from one another, giving to one another. Because we're commanded to be together. We were created and redeemed to be together. If we were to apply and use the means that God has given, reading the word of God, praying, regular fellowship with one another, our doubts would dissipate. Because we would speak truthful words one to another. We would speak words of encouragement. We would serve one another and show that God is good and trustworthy. And we'll grow as individuals and as a body of the redeemed. As William Ward says, discouragement is dissatisfaction with the past, distaste for the present, and distrust of the future. He goes on and says, discouragement is ingratitude for the blessings of yesterday, indifference to the opportunities of today, and insecurity regarding strength for tomorrow. It is unawareness of the presence of beauty, unconcern for the needs of our fellow man, and unbelief in the promises of old. John shows us that he needed to remember the promises of God, bring his doubts to Jesus, and continue to promote who he is. And so looking to Jesus overcomes doubts as he gives us a proper perspective. Well, next week we will finish this episode with John the Baptist and look at how Jesus continued to commend this great prophet. But until we get to that passage, what are some lessons we can take from our time today? Because the scriptures contain the promises of God, we will spend time reading his word and obeying its commands. I know there's a television program that's called The Voice, but for the Christian, there is only one voice. It comes from the word of God. Secondly, because Jesus is truly the Messiah, truly the Christ, we will gladly tell of his, works and, his words and works to others, and what a time to do it but now during the Advent season. And thirdly, when we experience doubt and disappointment, we will bring them to the Lord who can actually change our circumstances. The one who made you, who sustains you, who redeems you, who preserves you, is preparing a place for you as the one that can best take care of the problems that you're going through. And lastly, as Jesus did with John, we will deal gently with those who doubt, pointing them to the evidences found in the word of God. This week, when you face things that you didn't expect, take them to the Lord and watch him make a difference in all that you do. Fathers, we turn to you now in the great name of Jesus. We are thankful that our Savior deals with us gently we who doubt, we who fail, we who experience disappointment. But thank you for the righteousness of Christ, fully accomplished on our behalf, imputed to us by faith, and that we stand cleansed and forgiven in the presence of God. But as we work out our salvation, Father, we, we're imperfect, we make poor decisions, we stumble, we fall, we complain because we take our eyes off you. So would you lead us this week to continue to look to you, just as you commanded John to do, to look at what you are doing and what you have done and the promises of what you will do and find our hearts calmed by the presence of Christ and the promises of the word. Thank you, Father, for such a rich and great salvation. Thank you for the gospel that is good news of great joy for all the people. And in your goodness, you revealed it to us. May that continue to be good news of great joy that strengthens us to serve you well. With joy, with peace, with confidence, with great hope. May we serve you well this week as you lead us out in your power. As we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh in Jesus' name. certainly thankful for the reminder that even though our heart, our flesh may fail, the word of the Lord and his promises endure forever. Great is his faithfulness. Let's stand and sing that as we close.
thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by spring. 